From high above historic Belfont, and still in the smack dab center of the Keystone State, this is Lou Bryson with Seen Through a Glass, the podcast that's mostly about food and drink in central Pennsylvania. Welcome to episode 29, the turn of the year. It's that week between Christmas and New Year's Day when everyone who can is doing not much. My heart goes out to those who are in essential jobs or who can't get the time off. I was once one of you, and I feel it. We thank you. This week is a big thing for our family, and we always saved vacation time to visit with family and friends and help them eat their leftovers and play with their new toys. It was on one of those visits to family that I heard something that still sticks with me about this week. We were visiting Kathy's parents in rural New York after Christmas, which had fallen on a weekday. We went to Sunday morning Mass, and Father Barry seemed pretty relaxed. It's understandable he'd just gone through his second busiest season of the year. When it came time for the homily, he stepped away from the lectern and said simply, Well, it's been a really busy week, and I'll be honest with you, I've got nothing prepared for today. He paused and smiled broadly and spread his arms. Merry Christmas, everyone. It was a wonderfully genuine moment, and almost everyone in the church smiled and relaxed. I've got something for you, don't worry. I interviewed Ann Quinn Corr, who was a food writer for the Center Daily Times for years, and wrote a cookbook called Seasons of Central Pennsylvania that people in the area still talk about and use 20 years after it came out. She happened to be back in the area. She's moved to Wyoming to be closer to her daughter, and I grabbed the opportunity. It's a wonderful book, a very seen-through-a-glass kind of book, full of people and food and stories. We talk about food culture and about the hunting, fishing, farming, foraging ethic of central Pennsylvania and whether it's still strong. And then I'll tell you about a couple of her recipes that I tried, including one that had me sweating. But it's December 18th as I'm writing this and the interview is already edited and ready to go. It's a busy week we have on the way to Christmas. We'll be going to our local wine club party, the Sealands Grove and Elk Creek Cafe brew pub anniversaries, and my whiskey club tasting. I'm going up to the We Are In in Phillipsburg on the 23rd because Pat Romano is making a special batch of Philly-style roast pork sandwiches that he and I conspired about. We're going caroling in Milheim and then visiting my mother on Christmas Eve. It'll be a full week, and that's not even counting that hummingbird room Christmas dinner we're picking up on Saturday and the lasagna we're baking for Christmas Eve. All that's in the future, though, because I want to enjoy it all with a clear conscience of this episode done and not something to worry about in this special week of doing, well, not much at the turn of the year. I guess we'll get started with what I'm drinking today. When I was at the Belfont Victorian Christmas, I saw Bull City Brewing had set up in a little trailer outside Gamble Mill, appropriate since Bull City's brewer, Mike Smith, used to be the brewer at Gamble Mill. It's where I met him. Owner Gordon Kaufman was in the trailer, and I got some of their Bohemian Pilsner from him, because you can never have too much Pilsner. So that's what I'm drinking today. It's brewed with Czech malts, hops, and yeast to 4.8% ABV, which is about as Czech as you can get without being in-country. I've been to the Czech twice and feasted on Pilsner both times. So let's see how they did. Well, it is a fine-looking Czech Pilsner, uh, Bohemian Pilsner, excuse me, uh, a nice golden color, a little bit darker than straw, a white head on top. I'm drinking it from a dimple mug, which is a fairly common vessel in, in the Republic. So, mm. 
there's that slightly buzzy, slightly floral herbal aroma of the, uh, of the noble hops and that kind of indefinable fresh aroma that a, a good Pilsner has, especially one that's fresh. Uh, you can't really sip a Pilsner. You have to get a good three swallows in. I'm going to back have another. Mm. Mm. It's bitter, but the uh, the malt is broad and bready. That bitterness really clips in at the finish, and that's the the real secret of a pilsner. That bitterness rounds everything off at the end in a neat, oh wow, almost polished end. And you take a breath, and you realize it's time for another. Ah, oh, yeah. And before you know it, you're through a 16-ounce and ready for another one. I'm not going to get into a lot more detail on this because Pilsner kind of isn't that kind of beer. It's either good or it isn't, and this one's good. I'm uh, really happy that Bull City has opened, and I'm very happy that Mike Smith has an outlet for his talents. We're lucky to have him here. That reminds me, speaking of drinking... I have a tip for you on that Boilo recipe I gave you last episode. I made another batch for a party last week, and I kind of ran short on time before we had to leave. I did the full five-minute boil, but I cut the simmer to only 15 minutes. I also threw in half a bag of fresh cranberries. They were left over from Thanksgiving. I let it cool just a bit, poured it in bottles, took it to the party, and everyone loved it. It was noticeably better than that last batch. There were three other Boilo makers there at the party, and after discussion, we thought maybe the shorter steep got less of the bitter pith from the citrus, and the cranberries gave it a nice, crisp hit of acidity. The quest for the perfect Boilo continues. And in that spirit of culinary exploration, let's get to that interview. I wanted to talk to a cookbook writer, so I asked people in the area about it. Several answers came up, but the one that came up the most often was Anne Quinn Cor and Seasons of Central Pennsylvania in that, well, of course you're going to talk to her kind of way. I didn't know Anne. I wasn't familiar with her book, so it was a stroke of luck when she reached out to me on Facebook a little bit later to let me know she'd be back in State College for a week. And did I want to do an interview? Well, yeah. So I got hold of a copy of the book and read up on it. The book has a grounding in the way the original inhabitants of the area, Native Americans, lived off the seasonal bounty and took joy and sport in the hunt. Their pleasure feeds them, as she put it, and that's a theme in the book. We got to that, and it was a great bit of the interview. Enjoy. Hey, I'm here with Anne Quincor. She's the author of Seasons of Central Pennsylvania, uh, a cookbook about where we are. Uh, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's good to have you. This was a, a chance thing. We just kind of ran into each other on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So you were a, a, a central Pennsylvania food writer for years at the Center Daily Times. For people who might not be familiar with that, could you give us a brief history of what you did? And... Sure. I think I started around um, 1981, oh. 82, uh, started writing for the Center Daily Times and had a, a weekly or sometimes bi-weekly column uh, focusing on local people and what they eat and how they cook and what sort of celebrations they observe. And I got to know a lot of great, great cooks and had a lot of good meals. That was actually one of the, <coughs> excuse me, one of the questions I wanted to ask. 
I mean, your, your book is a book full of recipes, but it's also a book full of people and yes. stories. How, how did you meet these people? How did you find these people? You know, uh, once you get the word out, I also had a catering business. Okay. John and I had a catering business and uh, kind of the life revolved around food. So we would meet people and my husband was actually in the wine business, spirits, oh, wine and spirits. Okay. He worked for Southern oh, yeah. for many years. Um, and, you know, we, we had a circle of friends that were chefs and restaurant people, that sort of thing. So, you know. Yeah, they tend to know each other, yeah, don't they? Yes, they do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> They're very social. Yes. Social beings. Right. And they love cooking yes. for each other. Yes. Yeah. 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 While you were there, from when you started to, to when, you, when you finally stopped writing for the, for the CDT, how did the food scene in, in the area change? It's gotten much more international in, in State College. Okay. You know, the, there are so many more international students and small businesses, restaurants. and A lot of markets? Yes. Yeah. yeah a lot of markets. We have more uh, local farmers markets mm -hmm. than any place that I've ever seen, really. I mean, I haven't lived in New York City. There's probably plenty there. But um, seven, I believe, last count, seven. Right. Almost every day you can go to a, a local farmer's market, and they go year-round, so that's wonderful. Oh, that's true. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't really thought about that. It's amazing. Yeah. Where I live now in Alpine, we have a farmer's market, not one vegetable vendor. Really? Think about that. <laughs> okay? Yeah. No vegetables. Yeah. There's, there's, it's ranch country. There's uh -huh. beef, wonderful beef. We're very close to Idaho, so there's really good potatoes. Okay. Uh, that drain the reservoir for irrigation. But not even a tomato. No. Wow. No, there's not a good tomato. Now, Jackson, 45 minutes away, they have good markets. But um, what I tend to do, do is go to Idaho Falls. They have a really good oh, farmer's okay. market there. Okay. But, That's a nice town. I've been yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, it is a nice I town. I like it there. Yeah. Did things change because of just the students? Were there changes because in the restaurants? I think that... Uh, well, it certainly got much more upscale in, mm -hmm. in State College with um, and Belfont, not excluding. But when I say State College, I mean the everyone region. tells me how much Belfont has changed. Yes, yeah. Belfont has really changed the the Gamble Mill, the the, the era of the Gamble Mill. That they were good friends of ours, and um, we you know we would host all sorts of different events and get winemakers in. John would get winemakers in and. Have special dinners. We belo we had belonged to the American Wine Society at that time, okay. And we dabbled with making our own wine, like a, a white wine, local white wine. Uh -huh. um, no, I think it's uh, it's really opened up. Yeah, it, sometimes it almost seems like um, talking about connections to the Gamble Mill here, around here is is like Central Pennsylvania's version of the Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon. <laughs> it's like everyone is connected to that place, right? Yeah. Over 20 years after this book came out, mm -hmm. it's it's apparently still very much on the mind of food lovers in central Pennsylvania. I, I mean, I found that out as soon as I asked about food writers mm -hmm. in central PA on Facebook. What do you think gives your book or, or any beloved cookbook that kind of lasting appeal? Well, recipes never go out of style. You know, there are classic recipes. Uh, and, you know, I have had... Had cookbook. I started collecting cookbooks when I was twelve. Okay, so that's like nineteen sixty-two. <laughs> okay, I have culled the collection. I got when we moved. Of course, I got rid of things. Sure, but um, you know, I, I think people like vintage cookbooks. I think, and I think it's a little slice of history. 
Yeah. Yeah. And, well, as we as we said, there's there's just a lot of stories here. Yes. Yeah. Aside from the the places and people that are no longer open or with us or have moved away, mm-hmm. do you have any thoughts about what you would update or change, assuming you could just snap your fingers and have it happen? It's I wouldn't a- wish writing another book on anyone. All right. <laughs> uh, <laughs> ah, ah. right. You think the hard work's over, but no. No. The, prom- oh. the promotion is what kills you. Yes. I actually have a second season's already outlined. Wow. Okay. Because this book covers... Um, this first season covers like 19, late 80s into the 90s, 98, because uh, I wrote it in 98 and it came out in 2000. Okay. Um, but I have another, I was still writing for the CDT, so I was still cranking out lots of sure. content. Uh, and I have another outline with each uh, season has about 40 recipes and different people, photos, uh-huh. everything. Um, and I was going to go with, State uh, Penn State Press again, and something happened in their editorial group. Anyway, I, I ended up not doing it. Uh, oh. So now in th- this day and age, people are self-publishing and that sort yeah. of thing. So I, I may resurrect it uh, if the, if it. And when I go to the farmers market, and I talk I talk to people. Oh, you need to write another cookbook. Well, yeah, I ha- yeah. I have. You know, <laughs> basically, <laughs> we need to start you a GoFundMe. Yeah, <laughs> <right>. <laughs> Right. One of the things I noticed as I was as I was reading the book, there are a lot of mentions of of group efforts, and you've already touched on this a little bit. Uh, dinner clubs, mm-hmm. open house parties, uh, cooking together with families and friends. Do you have a sense of whether these things are still happening? I mean, my wife and I moved up from the Philly suburbs mm-hmm. uh, a few years ago. We already belonged to two clubs here, which we never did back dinner. in Bucks County. Dinner are they clubs? still around? What, I'm sorry, dinner clubs. Well, to be fair, they're uh, wine clubs. and drinking clubs. <laughs> but it, it's, I mean, honestly, they have morphed into of course. cooking. Yes, yeah, and we, I mean, the wine and, and whiskey have almost become secondary mm-hmm. as we try to outdo each other of in cooking. Of course, yes. of course. There's always a competition, right? Yes. We had friends over last night, yes. <laughs> Kim Tate from Tate Farm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Sure, sure. Yeah, good friend. Yeah, so this is... This is still going on here. It's still going on. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And do, you, do you think that's and, and again I'm contrasting it to our experience in Bucks. I mean, we had plenty of friends. It was mm-hmm. a, a there were a lot of people close together. Is it because we're a little more isolated here? I think so. I mean, it, it certainly was initially when uh-huh. this book was written. You really couldn't go out for a. I mean, there was the Allen at that time. It was called the Allen Room. Okay. At the hotel, that was fine dining. Yep. The tavern. Nittany Lion Inn, um, but nothing ethnic, really. Not oh, right, right. there was Italian, yeah. you know, with Dante's and that sort of thing. But if you wanted to get something really creative, you had to cook it yourself. We also belonged. I think what's significant, and I start the book with this, is the local mushrooms. We oh, are right. so lucky here in this region to have this. Uh, amazing amount of mushrooms that just in the forest just go out and pick them and bill russell i don't know if you know bill mm-hmm. russell um every monday at webster's you just go and take your mushrooms and he helps oh, identify them. oh nice yeah so. that's a that's a good idea yeah yeah that actually brings up i'm gonna skip a uh, a question ahead here you you, in, you do write a lot about hunting fishing mm-hmm. gardening foraging mm-hmm. Is that all part of that uh, their pleasure feeds them ethic that you, you wrote about in the introduction? Yes. 
And yes. it, is, is it still viable now? Absolutely. Okay. And as far as I can see r remotely, I, I, it's kind of miraculous that I'm here this week, by the way. <laughs> yeah, I noticed. I was like, I, I got to get this interview. Yeah, I, was, <laughs> I, I wasn't planning to be here um, because my daughter's working a lot, but uh, I love coming here in the fall. Of course, it's, yes. you know, it's a beautiful time it's of year. It's the best time of year. Yeah, it's best. Yeah, I noticed you started the uh, started the book with the fall. It's yeah. the beginning of everything, yeah. you know. <laughs> <laughs> Following up on that a little, are are young people being interested in the hunting and the fishing and the foraging? Um, I think so. For many, I taught at Penn State in the mm -hmm. nutrition department, and the best part of that job, because well, I was a required course, so. <laughs> it, it was interesting teaching the college kids how to cook, but what was more fun was a cooking camp that I ran, um, and literally camping a, a camp, you know, uh -huh. like a day a day camp okay. for um, middle school age kids, and that is my target audience really in terms of culinary education, uh -huh. because you can make such a, an impact, you can make such a profound difference in somebody's life if you show them how to feed themselves. Yes. In fact, do you know uh, Derek Pole at I do not. Tati in, in Pleasant Gap? Oh, bake yeah. Shop? Yeah. He was one of my campers. Really? Oh, that's going to give you a warm feeling. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. great. That's it's great. great. <laughs> he was my star camper. Nice. <laughs> Rock star. <laughs> <laughs> Regionality, stuff like that. I'm, I'm always concerned that uh, chain restaurants are chipping away at our individual identities as areas, making every area more similar. Do you think the same thing happens with home cooking as we all get our recipes from the internet or we all? No, I think that um, each region has foods that are, you know, kind of indigenous to that re region. So I think it's more like a tapestry throughout the country. Okay. Yeah. Good. Good. That's optimistic. Hopeful. Yes. I'm, I'm hopeful about it. Good. I'm hopeful about Good. It. I saw recently, I saw um, Sean Sherman, who's a sous chef, S-I-O-U-X. Oh, he's okay. A, he's a Native American. Um, and he was talking about, you know, how many tribes there are in this, in the, in this country, in North America, let mm -hmm. me say, you know, Canada and um, the U.S. And he's trying, he has a... a indigenous restaurant native american foods in minneapolis mm -hmm. and he's tr trying to encourage other native people to open oh. places throughout the country because you no know, these people were here first they were right. eating like what grows in, and comes from that region sure. that is what makes travel interesting it makes life worthwhile you know to to taste these different flavors and preparation methods and that sort of thing so, yeah yeah, even something as as mundane as pizza, mm. people complain when it's not like the pizza from this place or the. Right. That's why I, I, I want to try all the of different course. pizzas. Yeah, why, of course. What? Ah, sorry, well, uniformity is death. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you, did you drive out to? You were just out west. Did yes. You, drive? you see those Cisco trucks, right? Oh, American yes. American foods. Yes. You know, I, I mean that all that food is just. Moving, you know. Yeah, I don't understand this drive to, I, well, I just want my meal to be the same as it was the last time. Right, right. Why? No. <laughs> I mean, I realize there's going to be dips, but mm -hmm. oh my God, there's going to be peaks too. Right, right. Yeah. Sorry. Last question. And this is something you you 
open the very book with, and it's something we've been thinking about a lot, being transplants. What makes a central Pennsylvanian? Um, you have recipes from a lot of people who've mm-hmm. been here for generations, mm-hmm. but you also have recipes from people who had just moved here a few years before with a completely different cuisine. What's the common thread that made it a central Pennsylvania book? Well, we're lucky here with the university because we get, you know, we belong to the oh, hospitality council or whatever. We had friends from Nepal. We had friends from South Africa. So you get these people, but you're using chicken from here, you know. Oh, sure. You, okay. Uh, you, you might have to have, you might have to, well, these days you get it online, but you, you, in the old days you might have to go to Philly to get the certain oh, spices, spices sure. that you need. But, um, you know, you're, you're starting here, and, and that just makes everybody richer to, to get all these different flavors. So, yeah, I think central Pennsylvania is a really good place. <laughs> yes, yes. You may have to go a little farther sometimes. Right. But it's here. Yes. And it's, there's stuff here that is in other places. Right. Yeah, no, we really like it here. Yeah, no, you know, it's it's come a long way. Um, people that I, you know, knew when they were younger now in charge of the culinary program at, at Penn Tech, uh, you know, or at the high school. High school has an amazing program. Culinary. Really? Oh, the high school's culinary program is amazing. This is State College High. Yep. yep. Okay. Go check that out. That, I will. That's a good story. Yeah. Zach Lorber runs that. He's okay. amazing. Great. Yeah. Okay. That's all I've got, Anne. Okay. Thank you. Well, my pleasure. Well, I greatly appreciate Always it. Always glad to and, talk about food. And, and I'm glad. You should be drinking. Really <laughs> glad to have found you in the area. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No. All right, thank you. Yeah. Well, I had the cookbook. I spoke to the author. I had to make something. First thing I wanted to make was something that looked deceptively simple. Michelle Ebaugh's mustard sauce. I had some beautiful thick-cut pork chops to grill, and mustard sauce sounded perfect. Anne makes a great note on this one. She knows it as Michelle's mustard sauce, because that's who she got the recipe from. But Michelle calls it Ray Chambers' mustard sauce. Well, the paper copy Anne got from Michelle says J.A.'s mustard from Eleanor Hempstead at a Christmas party at Craig Claiborne's. Well, that made me curious, and Google's so helpful and so handy. In his food column in the New York Times on December 7th, 1977, Claiborne writes of his neighbor, Eleanor Hempstead, donating recipes to a project, including, quote, her admirable homemade tarragon-flavored mustard called J.A.'s Mustard, end quote. And here it is, 46 years later. We still bake a cake that my long-dead grandmother May baked for my now 92-year-old mother's 11th birthday. Recipes, good recipes, never die. What I didn't realize at the time is that this is one of three mustard sauces in the book, and I had picked the only one that requires cooking in a double boiler. It starts with a four-ounce tin of Coleman's dry mustard. If you know Coleman's, you know that's a mighty amount of mustard. I put the whole contents into the top pan of the double boiler and poured a cup of homemade tarragon vinegar over it. I just put tarragon in apple cider vinegar and sealed it up for a week. And I did not stir it, as the instructions specify. I put the lid on and left it to sit on the counter overnight. The next morning, I put it on the gently simmering water in the bottom pan of the double boiler and began whisking. It was a little weird, but all right. And then I added six eggs, six eggs, one at a time, 
continuing to whisk. When that was all smooth, I added three quarters cup of sugar and a teaspoon of salt, which I'd pre-measured, and that's when I noticed the note that total cooking time should be about five minutes. Do not overcook or the eggs will curdle. Yee! I still had to add a chopped up stick of butter. I started whisking in the butter bits and worrying over the eggs, and that's when I started sweating. Tiber hit six minutes, still stirring. Seven minutes, still stirring. The butter wasn't all incorporated. The emulsion had formed. Eight minutes, and all I could think about was how much those six eggs and tin of mustard had cost, and as the timer hit nine, suddenly everything went smooth and shiny. I twisted the double boiler apart and gently dipped the top pan into a sink of cold water for about ten seconds, continuing to whisk. Whew. Looked like I made it. Into the fridge with it. The pork chops grilled up wonderfully, and I heated some of the mustard sauce while they were resting. The sauce was a strange blend of rich, sweet, herbal, and that Coleman mustard heat that was made for that pork chop. I want to try it with some kielbasa next. You know what? It's that week between Christmas and New Year's. I think I'm going to have another drink. So the other thing that I'm drinking today is Pennsylvania Dutch Eggnog. Pennsylvania Dutch Eggnog, that's the brand name, is a familiar sight at the PA State stores this time of year, and man, do Pennsylvanians ever buy it. There's a reason the stores sell both the little hip flask size like I'm dr drinking from today and the big 1.75 liter handles. It's made by Jacklin's, the Philadelphia distillery that makes so many of the back bar liqueurs you'll find all over the state. Creme de menthe, rock and rye, blackberry brandy, spearmint schnapps, many more. Jacklin's is very Pennsylvania. It's been here since the 1840s, and almost all of their output is sold through the state stores. The eggnog, though, sells across the country in huge lots. What's in it? Well, from their website, it's real cream and real eggs spiked with a mixture of rum, brandy, and blended whiskey, and spiced with an unknown blend of stuff, undoubtedly nutmeg, but I'm not sure what else, and yeah, there's probably a fair amount of sugar in there. Is it any good? I'll be honest, I've never had it before, so let's try it. Well, it, it pours like cream liqueur, it looks like cream liqueur, it coats the glass like cream liqueur. Ooh, the smell is sweetly enticing. It doesn't smell fake. It's, I mean, it's like custard with some baking spices. Definitely nutmeg, maybe allspice, not really picking up any cinnamon, bit of clove. Let's try it. Mmm, wow. That is thicker and better than I expected. Honestly, I'm looking at this thing, and it looks kind of cheap, and to be honest, it is cheap. A $7.50 is about 10 bucks. but for coming out of a bottle at that price, that's a pretty decent eggnog. Mm. Wow, I kind of like that. Yeah, I I have no reason to uh, to not recommend this. If you haven't ever had it, do like I did. Go out and get one. Give it a shot. It's all Pennsylvania. Now, my second recipe from the Seasons of Central Pennsylvania cookbook went deep into winter. I made the woodsy potato gratin, the, quote, best vegetable of a dinner club, Anne reported on. The club was three couples who traded cooking for monthly meals, always doing new recipes and keeping records, voluminous records of recipes. 
This was their unanimous favorite vegetable dish, a potato gratin made with dried mushrooms, fresh chives, and heavy cream. I wanted to try it. I started by rehydrating an ounce of shiitake mushrooms with a cup of boiling water. While that was steeping, I sliced five russet potatoes, pretty thin. The recipe called for peeled potatoes, but I have this thing about potato skins. I love them. So I just scrubbed them and left the skins on while I sliced. Diced up three good-sized cloves of garlic and chopped a tablespoon each of fresh chives and parsley. I may have chopped a bit more than a tablespoon of chives. I like them, too. The mushrooms had sat in the boiling water for half an hour. I poured them into a coffee filter over a small pan to strain out any grit and squeezed the filter to get all that good flavor. I put the water on to boil so it would reduce a bit and chopped the mushrooms. And now I did something that I think was a mistake. I greased a casserole with butter, but Anne's recipe specified a shallow casserole, and I used one that was about four inches deep. Consider that foreshadowing. I heated a heavy tablespoon of butter in a Dutch oven and put the garlic and mushrooms in for two minutes. They bubbled nicely. Then I added everything else, including two cups of milk and a cup of heavy cream, plus salt and pepper. I stirred it gently but thoroughly and brought it to just boiling. Now everything went into that deep casserole and into a 350-degree oven, which is where I made my second mistake. Nora's top oven is a convection oven, and not for the first time, I forgot that. So after an hour, the potatoes on top were quite brown, not quite burned, and the potatoes around the edge were cooked, but the ones in the middle were not. Back in the oven for 10 minutes. Now the ones in the middle were just done, still with a bit of chew to them, so I wrapped it tightly in foil and set it on top of the stove. I just didn't want the top getting burnt. After half an hour, I opened up the foil. All the potatoes were done. The top was a bit crispy chewy, but the potatoes underneath were done, and those skins had great flavor. And the sauce? Woodsy indeed, with good earthy flavor from the mushrooms and a rich body from the cream. Not that hard. And with a shallow casserole dish, this would be a winner. Yum. Thanks, Anne. Last year, I told you about our anniversary dinner at Pine Grove Hall. This year, I kept our destination a secret, right up till we arrived in downtown State College. We strolled through the brisk winter air to Chumley's and caught two seats at the bar. Ellen Brown was right there to welcome us. We went to Chumley's for the cocktails. Kathy got a seasonal punch made with cranberries. I got a Knob Creek Manhattan on the rocks. Perfect mix, and just what I needed to set the tone for the evening. Manhattan, so serious on the rocks makes it a bit looser. We soon learned that the woman sitting next to us had grown up not far from where we used to live in Bucks County, and I swapped beer stories with the fellow sitting next to Kathy, who was drinking a bomber of Reisdorf Kolsch. It was a wonderful way to spend an hour before our dinner reservation. And dinner was nearby, at the Allen Street Grill. I'd been to the grill before, but only for drinks, and I was very much looking forward to this. I was not disappointed. I had made a reservation for one of the gallery tables over College Avenue, but the people who had the tables were taking their time. Would we like a window table on the side street? Sure. It was beautiful, and we had unwittingly dressed to match the decorations, so we got some nice photos that our waiter took. We got glasses of sparkling wine to start and ordered apps, baked halloumi with fresh figs and serrano ham with a celery fonduta. The creamy but firm halloumi played gleefully with the sweet figs. Cheese and figs is one of my favorite food combos. 
I'll admit that celery is not one of my favorite foods, but the cheesy fondue spiked with the salty, intense, paper-thin ham was outstanding, and I'm glad Kathy talked me into it. Full disclosure, I'm old friends with the Hotel State College beverage manager, Chris Peters. We did some whiskey events together when he was manager at Teresa's Next Door in Wayne on the main line west of Philly. And if you're ever in the area, by the way, I heartily recommend a visit there. Great, great bar and restaurant. I mention this because Chris had seen my name on the reservation list and stopped by the table with samples of three barrel picks they'd done for the restaurant. There were two whiskeys. One was an Elijah Craig cask strength Chris had named No Words, All Action, and it was a 136.9-proof beast stuffed into a silk suit, smooth but bristling with flavor and power. The next one was relaxing after that bruiser, and a first for Pennsylvania, a Rittenhouse rye, bottled in bond, barrel pick, that Chris named God's Wooder. A spicy herbal beauty, sweet from the barrel and spry with the rye. The third was a barrel pick tequila, an El Tesoro Reposado that Chris named No Negative Waves. I'm an El Tesoro fan, and I've been to the distillery, but this was great. Not over-oaked, the playful herbal dance of the agave was still very present, something I know El Tesoro master distiller Carlos Camarena considers vital. I'm definitely leaning more into Reposado over on Yeho these days. Chris was pretty happy with the picks, and after tasting, so was I. These were well-chosen as his picks always are. Thanks, Chris. Kathy got a glass of Sardinian red wine with her mushroom tagliatelle. I got a glass of Sly Fox, a Riley Stout, an old dear friend, with my seafood risotto. The tagliatelle was a full plate, with a delightful creamy sauce and plenty of bosky fungus. My risotto? I am a sucker for a rice dish, and this was wonderful, topped with crispy pieces of grilled steelhead trout. We didn't hesitate at the dessert menu. There was a chocolate tres leches cake, and we loved it. It was a genius move, adding chocolate to this delightfully rich dessert. I got a glass of tawny port to go with, and that was a genius move, too. Kathy was happy. I was happy. It was a happy meal and a great night out for our 34th anniversary. Now, the show did go a bit longer than expected in prep, so I'm actually finishing this up on December 22nd. Wine Club was a lot of fun. We got a bunch of pizzas from Pizza Mia in Belfont, two-for-one pizzas on Tuesday nights, and we all brought bottles of our favorite wines. I brought an Argentinian red blend, Alma Negra, an almost inky red that's been a favorite for years after my first tasting it at Tria Cafe in Philly. The club thought it was pretty good, too. Yesterday, I went over to Sealands Grove Brewing for their 27th anniversary celebration with my buddy from the Hanover episode, Dave Drees. This is the first celebration of the anniversary without founders Heather McNabb and Steve Leeson. They've sold the brew pub. I'll have more on that in 2024, along with a report on Axeman's taproom opening in Sealands Grove. The beers were exceptional, as always, and we were joined by Pennsylvania beer wanderers Carolyn Bletchley and Dwayne Hoffman anniversary regulars, and fans of the podcast. We shared glasses of the newly released Winter Double. Dave got a growler of the Scottish Ale, and I had a framboise, just to make sure it was still incredible. It was, if anything, even more incredible. We checked in on our house on the way home. Ugh. We have beautiful kitchen countertops, but the appliances got screwed up. Wrong model, wrong color, wrong size. So they'll be coming back next Wednesday, and we're one big step closer to moving back in. 
Finally, last night, we went to the first night of 16th anniversary celebrations at Elk Creek Cafe in Milheim. They had a new semi-hazy IPA, Solhunda, that was hugely popular. Great citrus pine flavor and aroma, low bitterness. The original opening menu was back, and I savored the valley ham and cheese with thick slices of locally raised ham on crisp sourdough toast with an eye-popping Dijon mustard. The Po Valley Troubadours played, and they were in rare form. The place was packed. It was like the old pre-2020 days. Long may they reign. Today? Well, today we're going grocery shopping for the holiday celebration, and tonight I'm leading a Christmas carol sing-along at Elk Creek. So, Merry Christmas, retrospectively, and a relaxing last week of the year to you all. I'll see you on the other side of New Year's Day. That's the show. My thanks to Ann Quincor for the interview. Still can't believe how that timing worked out. As always, you'll find pictures to go with this episode on Instagram at Stag Podcast and on Facebook at Seen Through a Glass. That's where you'll also find my link tree. Click on that to find a link to my coffee page where you can drop a few bucks to help keep this going. If you've already donated, thank you. If you like this episode, if you like the show, Please take a moment when you're done listening to leave a rating or review. The more reviews and ratings we get, the better we do on search results, and the more people will find the show. Thanks for your support. Minnesota has a new state flag, and I'd like to propose one for Pennsylvania. A simple golden keystone on a forest green background. Think about it. The next episode? It might be about soup. Or it might be a live recorded free-for-all with the folks from the Beer Thrillers blog. Much depends on how things break. Both of those episodes will happen. I'm just not sure when. Until then, thanks for listening. This is Lou Bryson on Scene Through a Glass from the smack dab, very relaxed, happy holidays center of the Keystone State.